1: and YouTube. We was after Bruin, Bobby Heenan and Rick Rude and Jake would be
0: the brave the way he's playing with snakes. Enthusiasts of highest taste was always trading some tapes. Dusty said it cold let me know about hard times and Randy be the cream and he was reaching for new heights. Flair was always going and Andre was so imposing. Doesn't matter if nobody can seem to beat Hulk Hogan. Turnbuckles and territories.
2: We'd be stuck to screams in 1980s and we came them and made
1: them believe by the turnbuckles and territories. Turnbuckles
2: Welcome back to Turnbuckles and Territories, the Gen X grown-up podcast that's all about professional wrestling from the 70s and 80s. With me,
1: as always, today is Barry. I'm taping the wrists up now, George. Getting ready to get in the ring, baby. And you know that Captain Kiwi is here. I've got the tables, ladders, and chairs. Managers
2: are a key ingredient to a wrestler's success both in and out of the ring. Although there have been many, few can rival the sheer vocal force of Jim Cornette. Today, we (laughs) look back on a career that rivals any Hall of Famer.
1: Yeah, I would definitely say he's one of the most polarizing people in professional wrestling. That's for certain.
2: Both in and out of the ring, yeah. I think I would say is a accurate statement. Jim uh, Cornette, yeah. he has been around forever. We're going to go through every factoid that I could find. My... Largest experience with Jim Cornette is obviously his time with the Midnight Express. We talked about them a couple of podcasts ago. And Jim Cornette, no matter what he did, even the times when he was being bullied and abused as a character and you would feel
1: sympathy for him, you still pretty much hated him. Yeah, but did you really feel sympathy for him? That's what I'm saying. It kind of (laughs) didn't. I mean, he definitely personified the man that you love to hate. Yeah, absolutely. you You can talk about Bobby Heenan, you can talk about MJF, you can talk about any number of great heels that have been in the wrestling world for so many years or the newer ones, honestly, I don't think anybody drew heat the way that Jim Cornette drew heat.
2: No, even other wrestlers oftentimes will say in documentaries these days about how he was the greatest heat magnet of his day. Like, oh, no Fans would literally try to beat his ass in the arena, not like wait for him outside like they would some other wrestlers or maybe try and catch him at the Denny's and key their car, slash their tires or anything like that. They would literally try to come over the whatever barrier might be between them and him. And sometimes there were very many barriers. <laughs> barrier. And they would just try to beat the hell
1: out of that guy. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I don't have a I whole mean, lot of
0: experience with him other than his podcast, but in the few matches that I have seen him at ringside, yeah, definitely heat magnet. Oh, the matches yeah.
1: are great, but if you really want to see Cornette in his element, watch some of the promos that man used to cut. Oh, Oh, dear Lord, did he know how to draw heat?
2: Absolutely. He just had, he had face- and a voice and a body style that just made you hate him. Every yeah. part about him. He, he had just anywhere to
1: punch. Oh. Yeah,
2: absolutely. I mean, and it was interesting because not only could he elevate himself and his own tag team or person that he was managing, mm-hmm. he could also elevate the other person by talking shit about him. Oh yeah. He yeah. Was I
1: mean, he was brilliant at that. He, <laughs> he may have been one of the best over. at doing that. <laughs> he knew how to put people over by making them seem like they are the most demeaning, horrible human beings on the planet. And he would rip them to pieces. Mm -hmm. And that just made the crowd love them that much more.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's enough time wasting talking about all the fun stuff that we're going to get into. So let's jump into the early history and early life of Jim Cornette right after the break.
0: On Saturdays from six to seven,
2: I want you people to be sure and tune in to WWF Wrestling and watch it right here on Channel 10. You'll see some great athletes and some great competitors. You also might have a chance to look at Terry Funk, once in a while at least. Championship Wrestling, Saturday night at 6 on KFDA Channel 10.
0: Now, like I said before, I don't have a whole lot of experience with uh, with Jim Cornette, other than the uh, the podcast, some of the later matches. Now, I do know he's from. Was it Tennessee? No,
1: Kentucky. No, Kentucky. He's okay. born in
2: Louisville, Kentucky. Okay, not okay, not too far from where I was born in Frankfurt. Actually, he was born oh. there. In 1961,
1: yeah. You don't get an accent like that coming from Tennessee. I'm sorry.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, there's definitely a difference between Tennessee and Kentucky accents, although anybody outside of those two territories probably wouldn't know the difference between the two. (laughs) Yeah. He had a little bit of a rough childhood, as you might wonder about. His father died when he was seven years old. Wow. And you're talking about 68 at that point. Now, this is a time when There's a lot of weird stuff going on in the world. The late 60s, the flower power, love everybody kind of movement. I'm going to tell you, talking with my mother who grew up during that same time in Kentucky and was she was a little bit older, obviously, than Jim Cornette at that point. None of that part of the American culture touched Kentucky. So yeah. oh, wow. he just grew up dirt fucking poor and hungry mm-hmm. the whole time.
1: That's so crazy. About right. That era and that part of the country, and I say that because it's just north of me, didn't really see a lot of pop culture influencing that. There was a lot of country, a lot of country mm-hmm. music, a lot of that kind of all shucks, good old boy feel to it. And it's kind of funny to hear Cornette talk now, it does cast back to that type of era. You can still hear it in who he is and how he speaks.
2: Definitely in how he speaks and who he is, it's interesting that his persona didn't really lend anything to that. Like he didn't hint at that early on in his career. Now, he started off in the wrestling business at the age of 14, so very super young. And that's not unusual from Kentucky. Most people had to find their own way in life at a much earlier age than other parts of the country, especially during that era. Did he start as a wrestler? No, he started as a photographer first and he did some ring announcing. He did timekeeping, all of the little jobs around wrestling that you don't think of very much. He was doing those. And Believe it or not, it was the photography thing that really got him in with the boys, so to speak.
1: Yeah, I can't remember who it was, but I remember reading a or hearing a quote or reading a quote saying something like, "If you can get over the heat with the audience the way that you get over the heat with the boys, then you're destined for greatness." Yeah, because <laughs> he would just get up into everybody's face with that camera, and it's so funny because I remember he he worked for WCW for a while, did he? He did Out for a Texas. little bit. Yeah, yeah. I remember that's kind of where I started the stories that I. I had heard of him as a photographer out in World cha- World Class Championship. And the Von Ericks would just look at him just trying to push him to get him out of the damn way. It was <laughs> he was just trying to get all up in everything. But all
2: of the wrestlers really super appreciated his work because what they would do is they would get the photographs from him and they and would so- use those as <laughs> things that they could sign and sell to their fans. So he helped the other wrestlers generate an extra source of revenue and income because this is back during the time when guys traveled up and down the road for $100 or $25 or $50, whatever it was for a match. And they needed extra ways to earn money. So some of these guys would carry boxes of photographs with them. And after the match or maybe at a local IHOP or something like that, they would literally, hey, yeah, if you want to if you want to autograph picture, I'll give you one five bucks or two bucks or whatever. And that was because
1: of people like him. It's important to note that during this time period, you didn't have T-shirts made of wrestlers. You didn't have banners. You didn't see a lot of that. That doesn't come in in until the 80s. Yeah, so a lot of the promotional stuff that you see people having – From around that era Either the wrestlers Themselves generated And were responsible For selling themselves Or it just didn't exist Yeah So anytime that you see Pictures of early Dusty Rhodes Magnum TA Those kinds of things The odds are That's something that Cornette took a picture of Sold the picture to Dusty He had it printed up And whenever he would travel He would sign them And give Mm -hmm. them out from there So Yeah
2: Now Okay Also pretty early on He ended up becoming friends With Christine Jarrett Now that's the mother Of Jerry Jarrett Jarrett, who she's also the grandmother of Jeff Jarrett. Now, yes, a lot of people from our era, Barry, probably don't recognize her contributions to wrestling. But one of her largest contributions was helping a young Jim Cornette in the wrestling business because of their friendship.
1: Huh. I didn't realize okay. that. I knew she kind of had the foothold for for CWA which Mm -hmm. Memphis wrestling. That's how everyone knows it. No one remembers continental wrestling. They remember Memphis wrestling, but that was kind of where the Jarrett family got their foothold. So that makes sense. That's where Cornette really got his foothold into the actual in ring work too.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So he starts in the wrestling business in 1973, roughly, So he goes from place to place doing things until about 1982. So about nine years later, he gets offered a job with the CWA, the Continental Wrestling Association.
1: Memphis wrestling. And
2: yeah, Memphis wrestling and this is the first time that he is ever allowed in a backstage locker room. So imagine
1: <laughs> dealing with a young Jim Cornette for 9 years <laughs> before you let him into the back with the boys. Well, at this point he's 21 years old too. So imagine a 21-year-old Jim Cornette turned loose. Oh my in god, a locker room. <laughs> The fact that that man made it out of there alive is a small miracle.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and he was hired by Jerry Jarrett, as you might expect. He was running CWA at the time, and it really cemented his love for the Southern wrestling style growing up in these organizations. He didn't start off with AWA and Vern Gagne and those guys he didn't start off with Vince McMahon Sr. and WWWF (laughs) back then. (laughs) He started off in Southern wrestling and because he was a good old Kentucky hillbilly Barry like we talked about Uh and because he was a young, brash hungry individual I think it lent him to developing the characters and some of the clients that he worked with because he strictly worked as a manager from that point on. He's one of the few that wasn't a wrestler first. Most managers had been wrestlers in their past and were kind of past their prime. And then they would, quote unquote, manage or mentor the next generation. That's usually how a manager got
1: their job in the business.
2: Not Jim Cornette. He kind of went from photographer
1: ring guy to manager. Right away. Yeah. There's only a handful that I can think of that even did that. The first one that comes to mind was Diamond Dallas Page. He was nah, known as a Diamond managed,
2: Page started off as a wrestler. Yeah, but he
1: sucked. He was horrible. <laughs> yeah, and but he started a... off as
2: a wrestler. He was terrible. Yeah. I'll get you that. But he but, started off as a wrestler in AWA. Uh,
1: yeah. But I mean, when he's better known for being a manager for so long and then got back into the ring and started. Running. his
2: Yeah, his famous like work, the work he's most known for, started off as a manager. Yes. Yeah. And then he became the wrestler after that. But you're right. Yeah, I mean, Cornette, he carved a different path. And we're going to get into that different path when we come back.
0: It's a rock'em, sock'em weekend. Friday, Macho free Man down, Randy Savage down. and the lovely Elizabeth bring the pile driver of Friday night videos, along with the latest from D2. And on Saturday, the battle's rage. Hockey Talk Man defends against the Macho Man. And Sika, the Wild Samoan Challenges Champion, Hulk Hogan, on Saturday night's main event. Get a ringside seat this weekend. Now, George, you mentioned that Jim Cornette had been the manager of the Midnight Express. Is that his first client?
2: No, absolutely not. Believe it or not, the first person that he managed in the CWA was Sherry Martell. Sensational Sherry?
1: Really? Yes. Sensational Sherry. Queen (laughs) Sherry.
2: Queen Sherry. But he had this weird gimmick. So you guys know a wrestling manager, generally the performers seek the manager out because the manager can help them get to wherever they want to be like the next champion of a thing or earn some kind of money or get revenge on some person. Right. Generally it's the wrestler seeking the manager out. Jim Cornette started off with a different gimmick where he was seeking out clients and his gimmick was that he was a rich kid, but a terrible manager and His clients would fire him after just one match. That was his whole (laughs) gimmick when he started. You talk about burying a new up and coming guy.
1: I mean, good lord. (laughs) That does explain what he was known for carrying to the ring, though. Because this is something I didn't know where the tennis racket came into play. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So
2: the tennis racket is really interesting. He ended up, and maybe I know I looked up this fact. I don't remember where I was going to talk about it, but he ended up watching a movie Mm -hmm. from that era. And so he didn't have the tennis racket at the beginning of his career. Oh, okay. As oh, far as that I remember was, him, he
1: always had it. So
2: He did, right. But it was later on in his career that he picked that up. But he had a tennis racket. He watched a movie and there was this douchebag character in the movie that was a badminton player. Okay. And he said, well, if I'm going to be the rich douchebag kid, I need to be like that. So instead of a badminton racket, he carried a tennis racket.
1: Jeez. <laughs> It worked. It
0: I, did, I, I right? remember the, the tennis racket. I do remember him carrying that to the ring. Well,
2: and he used that as an object of interference all the time. He used it to injure wrestlers. He used it to swipe at legs from the outside of the ring. It was really? really fun. But during that initial run that I talked about, he managed some other key people. He managed Dutch Mantel. Okay. Okay. He managed a guy named Crusher Broomfield. That was his character at the time. But later on, he became the one-man gang. And then after that, Akeem the African Dream. And oh.
1: Oh <laughs> the most racist character on the planet oh I'm my sorry. god that just <laughs> i love the one man gang i thought the one man gang was a great idea for a character mm-hmm. but when the whole thing of partnering him was slick and akeem the african dream yeah come on yeah. it <sighs> was terrible he
2: did have a stable early on okay but it was awful. <laughs> the first stable that he had and a stable is where a manager has a group of wrestlers, maybe a tag team and a couple of individual people stuff like that. Three um, or more. Has to be three, three or, or more, more to
1: be a stable.
2: Fair enough, I'll give you that. But his first stable was called the Cornet Dynasty. <laughs>
1: oh god. It's horrible.
2: It's horrible. Here are the people that were part of the Cornet dynasty. Okay. Carl Fergie. Who? Norman Frederick. Who again? No, I'm sorry. Norman Frederick Charles III. I hadn't finished the whole name.
1: Oh, my God. <laughs> and the angel. The angel. Wow. You
2: don't know any of those names because none of those people were worth a shit. <laughs> I seriously doubt they know any of those names. <laughs> the only name you know from that group is Jim Cornette. Yeah, pretty
1: much. Yeah. I mean, it's like Jim Cornette and his backing band. It's just, wow. Yeah. I mean,
2: later. NWO, <laughs> he, he tried a lot of different <laughs> gimmicks out, and he worked with a lot of different wrestlers. Even did a short stint where he went from CWA, they traded him to Georgia Championship Wrestling with Ole Anderson, when okay. Ole Anderson was the booker down there. but. That didn't last for very long. Ole just brought him in just for a few segments to do some stuff. And I think the most interesting part was when he came back to CWA.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Barry, you're real familiar with a guy down there, and we've talked about him in the past named Jimmy Hart. Mouth of the South. All right. They did a co manager gimmick. Really? First time I've ever seen that done. And I don't know how many times I've seen it done since, if ever.
1: Oh my God, the money that they spent on rhinestones alone for those two. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> Jimmy Hart and Jim Cornette. Yeah. Uh, the hair on the back of my neck is standing up right now, just going, I don't want to hear these promos. Oh, no, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Go find Are them on good?
2: YouTube. I swear to God, they're, Gold. Oh, geez. They are awesome. I don't think you can find them on YouTube, honestly. But if you could, can you imagine Jim Cornette and Jimmy Hart and both of them trying to get a word in edgewise with each other? That's like nails on a chalkboard
1: on top of nails on a chalkboard, though. To hear those guys. <laughs> you would <and> absolutely any- <laughs> hate anybody they managed. That's what they I mean, that's what they made their money off of because they were annoying as hell. But yeah, oh, that's I don't even want to think about it. that is not a peanut butter and jelly combination. There's no doubt in my mind. I would want to see it just to see if it's the train wreck that I think it would be (laughs) or if it actually somehow those things could coexist. It's to hit my friend Aaron where he lives. It's a mega powers kind of situation.
2: (laughs) It is a little bit of (laughs) Avengers.
1: Yeah. Oh, God. That's just bad. You know, brother, who thought this was a good idea? (laughs) I I
2: still think it's a good idea to this day. I want to see Jimmy Hart and Jim Cornette co-manage a group of people. Holy shit. Can you imagine if they co-manage the mega powers?
1: Oh, God, God damn. No. <laughs> God That's no.
2: gold God right no. there, ladies and
1: gentlemen. I'm going through full body shivers over here. You got to give me a minute, but you know, <laughs>
0: It's the NWA, the Major League of Professional Wrestling, with such top-notch stars as the world champion, the Nature Boy, Rick Blair, the Four Horse, Tully Blanchard, Arn Anderson, and Barry Windham, Ron Garvin, the Total Package, Lex Luger, and many others. And keep the date in mind, Thursday, July 21st, in Cincinnati, for this gigantic summertime event. The NWA, the Major League of Professional Wrestling. Keep it here to this station for more details on the gigantic summertime event coming your way.
2: Outside of his early gimmicks and Sherry Martels and Dutch Mantels and all the, the Mantels or whatever
1: you might want <laughs> to say, not, to yeah. Jim Corn Angel,
2: <laughs> right? The Angel. Good lord. There's no question that Jim Cornette is most famous as a manager of the group, the Midnight Express. And oh yes. This was a group that had a lot of different people in it. But really, the biggest part is when a whole bunch of people get traded to Mid-South Wrestling. Now, you guys know Mid-South. That's the group that was run by Bill Watts. And Bill Watts was famous. Right for making sure that people really worked stiff, like real punches to the face almost, and very tough matches. That was kind of his moniker for Mid-South Wrestling. But the people that got traded before the Midnight Express got formed and everything were Jim Cornette, Dennis Condry, Bobby Eaton, Ricky Morton, and Robert Gibson.
1: Oh, goodness. You just (laughs) gifted a beautiful
2: fucking package to Bill Watts. That's essentially what happened. Now, Bill Watts gave up some good people, don't get me wrong. He sent back to CWA Rick Rude and Jim Neinhardt, along with a few other wrestlers. So he did give up some solid talent.
1: Yeah, no doubt. And one thing I want to mention about Mid-South Wrestling, and this is a big misconception that a lot of people have about Mid-South. When they hear Mid South, they think Tennessee. Well, Mid South wrestling actually wasn't based in Tennessee. It was based out in the Carolinas, wasn't it? I believe they, so. They really only to... ventured, they did venture into Tennessee. It was kind of into like the Knoxville area, but it didn't really take hold in Nashville further west. That was all CWA. No, I, so, and, so you said you thought they were where? I thought Mid-South Wrestling, if I'm not mistaken, was based out of the Carolinas. I think they were they were more out of Louisiana.
2: The Carolinas is the Crockett promotion. That's what
1: I'm thinking yeah. of. Okay. Yeah, I think,
2: nice. okay. Yeah, no, they were out of the Louisiana area. So okay. Mid-South, right? Yeah. So middle of the country, southern part of the map. And they had some solid people. But when you, as Jerry Jarrett has said, I've seen a <laughs> couple of interviews. He said, it may have been one of the worst trades I ever made because I created the best tag team feud that never was in my territory.
1: Poor Jerry. He had some great things, but he wasn't exactly the best businessman. No,
2: Now, it was Bill Watts, the genius of the Mid-South promotion that put Cornette with Condry and E. He could have gone the other way. Can you imagine Jim Cornette managing the Rock and Roll Express? Well, you don't have to because he did for a brief (laughs) stint during that feud, Yeah, but it was a swerve, of course. But, I mean, the genius of Bill Watts to put those three individuals together. Yeah. And then Condry was the one who told Bill Watts, well, I just want to keep our name that we used to use over in Southeast Championship Wrestling, the Midnight Express. Condry, not known for being super creative, just decided to keep what he already had.
1: Hey, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. I mean, especially if they've already established themselves with a the name and started to build up a little bit of a following, why not bring it over?
2: Yeah. I mean, Condry had, obviously this is Eaton's first time as part of that group, but obviously the magic in the sauce is Jim Cornette.
1: Yes. No yeah. doubt. I mean that giving those two performers a mouth, you'll hear us use that term a lot, mouthpiece. Basically what that is there's a lot of great wrestlers that are amazing in the ring, but absolutely horrible on the microphone. And sure. those are people that need someone that can kind of speak for them. Usually it's a manager or a valet or something along those lines. And Cornette is hands down one of, if not the best mouthpiece for a performer in wrestling. He yeah. could put over anyone, kind of what we were talking about beforehand. So giving him that opportunity to kind of speak for Condry and Eaton, oh, stroke of genius. Struck a genius.
2: Now, Captain Kiwi, I know this is early 80s, so this is probably a little bit of before your time, but I want to tell you about one of the first most important feuds and runs that the Midnight Express had over in Mid South Wrestling. So, believe it or not, their first feud and championship run was against Magnum TA and my boy, Mr. Wrestling Number Two. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Not Mr. Wrestling, Mr. Wrestling number.
2: (laughs) Mr. Wrestling number two. Mr. Wrestling was the guy that is maybe most famous for being the only face in the heel airplane crash with Ric Flair and that group that broke Ric Flair's back.
1: Oh, this the one. Mr. Oh, wrestling wow.
2: number two yeah. is the guy who came in and changed the mask slightly. It went from an all white mask to a white mask with a black face kind of yeah. area. But he and Magnum TA, and this is early Magnum TA, like super early Magnum TA before he gets into NWA, Georgia Championship and WCW. They had a feud with those guys that ended up with this famous incident I'm going to say where Eaton and Condry tarred and feathered Magnum T.A. in the
1: ring. Wow. Oh. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, we were talking about hillbilly redneck. Yeah, that tar and feathering, that (laughs) kind (laughs) of (laughs) fits. They had... Right after that championship run, what's
2: Bill Watts going to do? Well, I got these other two guys in the trade. Let's put them in a feud together. So that's when you get the first Midnight Express and Rock and Roll Express feud. Oh. Is in Mid-South. It's long before the stuff that you mostly know in that feud from NWA, Georgia Championship, and WCW.
1: Right. I mean, you have the beginning wow. of what became, I'll say it, quite possibly the greatest feud in all of professional wrestling. Definitely one of the most long-lasting ones. Yeah, I mean-
2: Of tag teams. I'll give you that. Oh,
1: definitely of tag teams. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. If you go singles, boy, there's some really good ones out there. But for tag teams...
1: I mean... I would put this. I don't this know if you that like,
2: lasted as long as that one did.
1: It lasted years, didn't it? Yeah, it's oh god, it seemed like it lasted forever.
2: I remember. So this was eighty three, eighty four when they started that first feud. Then there was another brief run that they did against the Fantastics in WCW. That was terrible. Oh. They ended up coming back to Jim Crockett Promotions. That's the Carolinas one that you were mentioning <laughs> earlier, Barry, yeah. and WCW where Jim Crockett kind of rebranded and. They feuded again in 86. So you've got 83 to 84, then 86 through like 90, 92, roughly. There were a couple of different iterations of the Midnight Express during that period, though, because it wasn't always Condry and Eaton. As we mentioned in our top tag teams podcast, there was Dennis Condry and Bobby Eaton at the beginning of this group the real Midnight Express group. But then very shortly thereafter, Dennis Condry left Jim Crockett and they brought in Stan Lane. And that's really where the feud like matured and hit its stride. I mean, some of those matches between those two tag teams and Jim Cornette always being the catalyst to Rock and Roll Express losing the match every single time. But he did it in such imaginative ways
1: that it didn't get boring or old. No, actually, it, it led to the adventure on it because it's almost like you want to see what he's going to do next. Yeah, it's never just reaching over, grabbing a foot, and tripping somebody. It's interfering with the ref. It's distraction. It's throwing in foreign objects. It's—I mean, any number of different things.
2: To answer your question a little bit m- more directly, Aaron, I would say that feud probably lasted ten plus years. It's definitely crazy. something you don't see anymore. No, yeah, you, and not just that it lasted ten plus years, but also that it spanned organizations. Yeah right? Mid-South to Jim Crockett Promotions, WCW, they did some work all over the place, really. I mean, they had the best feud in tag team history, in my opinion. I don't I agree with you, Barry. I don't think there's any better.
1: Yeah. Well, can we just take a minute and back up on one thing, though, because we're talking about bouncing around a lot of different areas and the different territories and stuff, but there's one Mm -hmm. particular match. There's one that sticks out in my mind that I still go back to and watch just because it was like, who thought this was a good idea, but I'm glad they did. Can we talk about Night of the Skywalker's for just a moment,
2: okay. All right, so we you're right, we're bouncing all around tag team timeline and who was part of what organization. So you're talking about '86 yes, with the
1: Road Warriors, yes, and watching Jim Cornette try to learn how to fly. <laughs> for those of you that have never seen this match, I can't, it was it was at a Starcade, wasn't it? I think it was so. Starcade, believe so. Yeah, I think it was Starcade 3, but the they called it Night of the Skywalkers and it was a scaffold match and it was between the Road Warriors and the Midnight Express. And there was a spot in this where some Paul Ellerling was supposed to basically chase Cornet up to the scaffold and he was going to drop off of it and someone was going to catch him. Well, now keep in mind, this scaffold is probably about, what, 16, 18 feet off the ground, something like that.
2: Yeah, I think they said from the underside of the scaffold to the ring mat was 20 feet. And then if you went straight down to the concrete below the ring mat, it was another five. So 25 feet was what, they
1: build it as so during the spot Cornette gets this brilliant idea of saying okay there he's got this valet that's coming with him a guy named big bubba who's supposed to catch him or when he looked at the spot he's like there's no way he's going to catch me so just get underneath me and give me something soft to land on kind of thing well the spot goes Cornette crawls underneath there to get away from ellering starts to drop and bubba misses him yes and he lands directly on his leg Yep. And just to watch it, it was just brutal. But I love him or hate him, I will give Cornette credit for one thing, if nothing else the commitment that man has to a spot because he sold that spot.
2: Yeah. Now, I mentioned this earlier. Aaron, this is something you might find interesting. So we've talked a lot about how the Midnight Express has had multiple members as part of its group, right? Right. When in 1987, Dennis Condry quit Jim Crockett Promotions and he literally just didn't show up. Yeah. He, he just he showed. Not yeah. just the event. He no-showed every meeting and everything. They didn't wow. know what to do with him. So he was gone. They were trying to figure out what to do? Jim Crockett and David Crockett, who ran that organization, the two brothers were brilliant, but they had an ace in the hole. They had the greatest booking mind in wrestling history on their payroll, Dusty Rhodes. And in 1987, wow. Dusty Rhodes is the man who took Stan Lane, a kind of an unknown wrestler, and put him in the Midnight Express as Dennis Condry's replacement, arguably forming the greatest version
1: of the Midnight Express in history. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you talk about those strokes of genius. That, that occurred for this to actually happen. That's definitely, when Watts decided to bring everybody in and put these two together, or these three together initially, that was one. Stan Lane coming into it was another one. And it was just like the perfect storm. The best creation of the best tag team with the best voice.
2: They ended up winning the U.S. tag team titles. Okay. And won that like three times over the careers. They ended up winning the world tag team titles later on from Arne Anderson and Tully Blanchard, the horseman tag team. Wow. And right. that was a Really fun series of matches that ended up in, a, that was 1988. And the reason why that was done, where were Tully and Arn going?
1: They're going to WCW. No, they were in WCW. They, oh, were, they going were going where? They're becoming the Brain Busters then. Yes, okay. exactly.
2: They're heading up to Aaron's neck of the woods up in WWF and <laughs> joining that <laughs> crazy organization that really just kind of threw them under the bus for the next year and a half. I mean, it was no terrible. Kidding. But Oy. they didn't last very long with that tag team title run. But Mm -hmm. they did okay. Unfortunately, they kind of ran into a buzzsaw known as the Road Warriors.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
2: (laughs) And they never really had a solid feud with that tag team, believe it or not. And I think it was due to the fact that at the time, the Road Warriors were booked so strong that Mm -hmm. nobody could see the midnight express having a chance in hell of winning any of those matches
1: yeah again just for some of our younger listeners that may have a better foothold on modern day wrestling compared to what we're talking about the way that the road warriors were booked is kind of the way that they book like Roman reigns now mm-hmm. where it's pretty much untouchable he's never gonna lose the difference is the road warriors could back it up and yes. those guys <laughs> I mean if they didn't get what they want they would just beat the crap out of somebody so right
2: <laughs> we, we kind of need to wind it up here so we can move on because this has become a Midnight Express podcast, and it's really because of Jim Cornette. But they did have some notable feuds with a lot of people at WCW. They feuded with the Freebirds for a little bit. Of course. Everyone did. The Dynamic Dudes. (laughs) (laughs) Swear to God. The Samoan SWAT team, which was a solid tag team. Good yes. mid-card tag team. And the Steiner brothers. They had a nice little run for about six months against the Steiner brothers. So I could see that. I could see those are
1: really good matches, too.
2: They were some really great technical matches there because... Stan Lane and Bobby Eaton both were impressive technical wrestlers. Yeah. And then you put Jim Cornette as the face of that tag team with them. That's Mm -hmm. why it was so magic. I mean, it's incredible that group held together and lasted as long as it did in that trio. I mean, it was something like six, seven, eight years of that trio alone. Yeah.
1: And I mean, it's the one that people think about when they think of the Midnight Express. Mm -hmm. You can't think of the Midnight Express without... Jim Cornette. I mean, right. it, just, it doesn't exist.
2: And when you think of Jim Cornette, the first thing you probably come to mind is his association with Midnight Express until you start thinking about his later career. And this is the one where I think Aaron is probably going to have a little bit more information and knowledge on when we start talking about the work that he did a little bit later on after he left WCW and Jim Crockett Promotions. Twas the 7th of December. Wrestling stars were in the sky. All America was watching. Expectations were high. On Dusty Rhodes, on Ric Flair, the Midnight Express 2. Barry windham Animal, and the Fantastics. Boo.
0: Flash of the Champions 4 Seasons Beatings. Live at 8.05 p.m. Eastern on Superstation tbs Wednesday. No, 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 Season beatings no. to all and to all. A good fight. <laughs>
1: Now, something I want to talk about is when Cornette started getting behind the microphone. Cause that's Ah. when you really got to see him just turn loose.
2: Well, in behind the microphone, not as a manager, but now you're talking about as a color commentator, right?
1: Yes. Because that was, I want to say it wasn't around like 88, 89 is when he started with Jim Ross. Just watching those two play off one another was so much fun. I mean, those guys, again, you've already got Jim Ross, who arguably one of the better commentators in wrestling and the ability to throw over to another heel commentator that's they did such a good job with Jim Ross of putting him with a heel Jerry the King was kind of a heel sort of mm-hmm. but whenever they had him with like Paul E or putting him Cornette that was gold that was absolute gold because you got to hear him channel his inner Jesse Ventura
2: I think he did a better job than Ventura even did in cases because especially that combination with Jim Ross and Jim Cornette Jim Ross always plays the southern Oklahoma boy vibe right yep. that's right. his thing Jim Cornette plays the southern drawl but acts like he hates it.
1: Yeah, the self-hating Southerner. Exactly. I, I never thought put, about that. But yeah, he actually did kind of play that off as not wanting to be, what did he call him? The brain dead Hicks or the yeah, redneck Hicks or something like that? he did that
2: all the time because that was kind of his, that initial character that we talked about early on where he was the rich kid ne'er-do-well. Yeah. That was, he carried that persona throughout everything that he did in some form or another. Now, he worked with Cornette for a couple of years, but then he kind of went and did some other stuff, right, Captain Kiwi?
0: Yeah, it- In 91, 92, he went and formed uh, Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Out of Knoxville,
1: Tennessee. I'm well
0: familiar with it. He did that for a couple of years. I think that ended in maybe 94, 95.
1: He didn't just form it. He was the booker. He was the booker, right? Yeah. Yeah. He was kind of pulling double duty. He was still working with the WWE. Was it WWE at that point or WF? WF when he went at that there point. in 93. Yeah. So he was pulling double duty. He was doing Smoky Mountain. I think he only did that for like three years. But he was also still doing the commentary and also a very active with some of the performers, too.
2: Oh, Jesus Christ. You're going to talk about Camp Cornet, Camp Cornette. Yes, I am. <laughs> No, that
1: that Yokozuna, Owen <laughs> Hart, Owen Hart, and the British Bulldog, also known as Camp Cornette. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> well, and it had
2: others too, but those are the three most prominent. Oh, yeah. The three people that I would never expect Jim Cornette to manage, Yokozuna, Owen Hart <laughs> and the British Bulldog.
1: Now, to be fair, one thing we need to clarify, this is the British Bulldog, not the Bulldogs. Right. Yeah. So this yeah. is
2: Davey Boy Smith when he took yeah. on the singular moniker after the tag team split up in Dynamite Kid. I think he went to Japan mostly at that point. Yeah. But that was yeah.
0: what, 92, 93, 93. 93. So it's after, and- after, after Davey Boy Smith won the Intercontinental title and lost it.
1: Yeah. Yes. And okay. this is really where you got to see Owen Hart starting to become into his own. I mean, you he, he was no longer being billed as Brett's little brother. You know, True. He was high energy. Building, yeah, oh yeah, high energy. <laughs> With Coco he, was he wasn't the Blackheart yet, but he was right. high energy Owen Hart and, and those god-awful, what, black and white checkered. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, Jesus. It was so bad. And who would have thought to put him and Yokozuna? I mean, well, the guy.
2: So, Cornette lended authenticity to those characters. That. That's Absolutely. really what you put him with those people for, because none of those people necessarily need somebody. Yokozuna needed a manager, but you could have put anybody with him in his physical presence alone yeah. would have made him a fan favorite. Wasn't Mr. Fuji Yokozuna's manager? For a short time, yeah. For a short time, yep. Yeah. And that's, so this whole Camp Cornet thing was a thing that Cornet did throughout his career, which is the trade with other managers gimmick. Yeah. Right. So they would trade wrestlers on air back and forth. And it was just really a way for the booking committee or the writers to get people with different people to try interesting combinations. Because truthfully, at the time, 1997 WF, they're really trying to put NWA and WCW out of its misery. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, 1997, this is when he officially joins the WWF announce team. And behind the scenes became part of the booking committee. Barry, you've talked about this in the past. Uh This is
1: where the Russo feud begins. Oh, my God. Those two (laughs) hated each other. I'm no big fan of Vince Russo to begin with. Okay, let me just say that for the record. That's okay, bro. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this truly was, you know how you've seen. Have you ever been in a store or a business or whatever? And you know that there's a fight going on in the back but everybody's trying to keep a brave face out in the front Mm. and try to, everything is fine. The Titanic is sinking, but the steward is telling you, please find a comfy place to sit. That's kind of what this felt like back in that era. You knew that there was stuff going on behind the scenes where these two were just at each other's throats.
2: Well, and this was also the beginning of the modern Internet. And so things were starting to get leaked more often at that point. The dirt sheets were coming into their own. And Mm -hmm. you started to, as a fan, hear about the arguments and the blood feuds going back and forth between these two individuals. So, just for our listeners who are not in the know, Vince Russo was strictly a booker for years with WWF. He eventually jumped ship, went to WCW for a period of time, put himself in more of an on camera role towards the the blood. He and Jim Cornette butted heads all the time. And I think it's mainly because Jim Cornette's opinion, and he stated this in multiple interviews and on his own podcast and stuff that we're going to talk about, he felt like Vince Russo never paid any dues. Never did any of the work. He just came in as a writer and a mouthy New Yorker, as Cornette put it. Yeah. And so- he never respected Vince Russo. And I don't know if that's a good or bad thing because my heart is in Southern wrestling. And so I'm kind of on Jim Cornette's side, but I have to admit Vince Russo, he had some pretty good ideas from time to time. Now he had some bad ideas, but.
1: <laughs> it's I put him in kind of the same category as like Eric Bischoff because Russo, yeah. again, an idea man is an idea man and a broken clock is right twice a day. That's kind of the way I look at it. Mm-hmm. But to really know, I honestly don't think Vince Russo ever took a bump until he actually went into WCW.
2: Yeah, no, he never. I right. don't
1: remember ever seeing him take any Not kind on of a camera, shot, at least. So I'm like, how in the world are you going to know what you're writing about until you actually experience it? And it's right. kind of the same thing with Bischoff. I mean, to Bischoff's credit, at least he took a few bumps during the process, but. Just, I was never a big fan. Well, of
2: let's it. get back to Cornette because that's the yes. focus of the podcast. <laughs> yes, yes. 1998, <laughs> they do another invasion angle in WF. This time it's the NWA invasion, which mm-hmm. is Jim Cornette, what he's most closely associated with. That's why he was the face of that. In 1999, however, he kind of goes his own way and he becomes the lead booker and part owner of Ohio Valley Wrestling, which mm-hmm. was kind of a developmental territory for the WWF at the time. And he is credited Credited by many with developing John Cena, Dave Batista, Randy Orton, and Brock
1: Lesnar. Wow, and several others if I remember correctly. Those yeah, are the but big heavy hitters, you know.
2: You think about that—that that became the Mount Rushmore of two thousands PG era WWE wrestling.
1: Yeah, yeah, I would agree yeah. with that. I mean, the fact that you have. On that list, two, arguably three of the most notable wrestlers for the past 20 plus years. I mean, it's kind of hard to argue with that.
2: And two of those guys have credited Jim Cornette directly for helping them with their next careers when they moved into movies. John Cena and Dave Batista have both said that the things they learned in Ohio Valley Wrestling helped prepare them for their film careers later on. Okay. It's not something I would have
1: associated with Jim Cornette, but it's there. So you mean we have Jim Cornette to thank for the, the wonderful acting career of Dave Batista?
2: Hey, I'm <laughs> telling you, you're <laughs> not going to throw shade on Guardians of the Galaxy while I'm running this goddamn podcast. Hey, Dave Batista is awesome as Drax.
1: Okay. You, for every Drax, there's always the movie Stuber. I'll just throw that out there All and we'll right, leave it alone. Whatever. I, I don't watch his movies. I don't like Mr. <laughs> Wrestler. He lives in Batista movie Denial. I love it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So Cornette in the 2000s, he worked at a lot of different places because Cornette really longed for those territory days. And he really didn't like the homogenization of wrestling under WE. He worked at TNA, ROH, OVW, a group called what. what culture. The WWE went back to them for a little while. Impact Wrestling, back to that small single NWA organization and even Major League Wrestling. So he really went everywhere and he was respected almost everywhere he went, at least for a short period of time before they got tired of it.
1: Yeah, Yeah, he's said at the beginning of the podcast, he's a very polarizing man. Yeah, he is.
2: Captain Kiwi, This is the part where I think you get to reign supreme because Jim Cornette more from his podcasting work, right? Oh, yeah.
0: He has a podcast. I think it's released weekly or every two weeks or so and i'll sit there and enjoy the uh, the stories he shits on vince russo quite a bit and rightfully so <laughs> i think he's under the the brett screwed brett camp for the montreal screw job he didn't want to do do business the right way and i learned a lot of kind of the backstage wf smoky mountain wrestling a lot of the backstage stuff that uh, that was going on around the attitude era and stuff like that primarily with vince russo and his hatred but my big takeaway from from the from Jim Cornette's podcast is his catchphrase, "Thank you, fuck you, bye." <laughs>
2: And there may be no better way to end a Jim Cornette (laughs) podcast than with his own catchphrase of thank you, fuck you, bye. It's been a wonderful trip down memory lane with this hugely influential individual on the world of professional wrestling. I'm glad we chose Jim Cornette as one of our first managers to talk about on this podcast. I think he absolutely embodies the territory system of professional wrestling in every sense of the word. He started out at a super young age of 14 and is still this day involved in professional wrestling in one way or another. And I'm super happy that the man has put together a career that I've gotten to enjoy over that time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I have to admit, he's still to this day, the man you love to hate, you know, no one personified that better. No one personified that on more on multiple levels the way that he did. And I would put him at the same level as a Bobby Heenan as far as yep. how to be able to draw it. However, I would say Cornette was better at drawing Heat than even Heenan was. Oh, he was that I good. I think so. Yeah. He was that good.
2: Yeah. Now, it's interesting that you use the phrase, the man you love to hate, mm-hmm. because in our next podcast, we're going to talk about a man that I just hate, period. There's, <laughs> I don't have any other words for the man. Yeah. We're going to talk about a super crazy situation called the Mass Transit Incident.
1: Oh, oh, gosh. Yeah. This
2: is a dark stain on the wrestling industry, but- We can't just talk about all the positives with this podcast. We've got to talk about every facet of the professional wrestling industry, especially from the territory days. And this is kind of a more modern territory day thing. It's not the 70s or 80s, but the mass transit incident holds a place in wrestling folklore. And we're going to discuss all of that next time. Until then, Captain Kiwi, thank you so much for being here.
1: It's been educational.
2: Barry, super happy as always to have you.
1: I've got to go get my tennis racket restrung.
2: (laughs) And fourth listener, it is you we appreciate most of all, and we'll see you guys next time.
1: Before the days of internet and YouTube, yeah, we was after Boo Bobby Heenan and Rick Rude, and Jake would be the Our theme song is courtesy of nerdcore hip hop artist Beefy. Explore his work at Beefiness.com. Turnbuckles and Territories is a production of Gen X Grown Up and a member of the
2: Evergreen Podcast family. Learn more at Evergreenpodcasts.com. Podcasts.com. and Territories, we screens in
1: the 1980s, and we We be stuck to screens in 1980